You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Satan, your kingdom must come down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Satan, your kingdom must come down. Gonna pray. Hello everybody, Danny Anderson here again, welcoming you to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. Uh, today we're once again going to dive into a particularly wacky subset of Christianity and look at an old pamphlet that predicted that the rapture was going to be in 1988, uh, very creatively entitled 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. Uh, and this thing is uh, really sure of that, <laughs> going into some excruciating detail for the reader, that is, to back up that claim. Uh, now, to, now I keep going back to these subjects, and I feel like I sort of have to justify it. And Okay, for one thing, I'm totally still working through the psychological damage all this stuff did to me in my youth. Uh, the Chick Tracks, we did a show on that already. End Times Prophecy, Satanic Panic backmasking rock records. Uh, all of this is very near and dear to my heart and probably explains my enduring interest in horror movies as well. Uh, but I do have a less personal, more serious reason for returning to these subjects. Um, there's definitely some re useful rhetorical and theological work to be done by looking into these things. And I think that today's topic is a particularly useful one. Uh, and by the end of the show, I hope that we can identify at least part of a pattern that many other things follow, both political and religious. Um, and, and we're going to talk about um, the apocalyptic imagination, conspiratorial thinking, and how you know data can obscure fact. Uh, and I think that you're going to see a lot of corollaries in our current political moment, all through the magic of rhetorical analysis. Uh, and so uh, joining me today, um, two Christian humanist uh, luminaries here uh, from the City of Man podcast. We'll start with uh, Coyle Neal. How you doing, Coyle? Doing all right, Danny. How are you? I'm doing okay. I keep dragging Coil into these. We did a few months ago this uh, crazy Christian conspiracy theory uh, book that um, that's kind of Coil's fault. I thought he was serious about wanting to do that episode, so <laughs> um, and so <laughs> we bought it and and, uh, and and read it together. Uh, and so this is sort of a, a pickup on that, I think, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's obviously. Uh I, I wouldn't be surprised to find out that the author of the other book we did had read this book and been deeply moved by it. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, and so Coyle is very gracious in, in coming back on the show, and uh, hopefully you'll hear him again in the near future uh, on, a, on a future episode. But um, joining Coyle and I from the Christian Humanist Podcast is uh, uh, Nathan Gilmore. Nathan, how are you? I am doing well. Uh, we have already started classes here in lovely Emmanuel College. They figured that... Uh, you know, we should start when it's at its absolutely ungodly hottest and most humid in Georgia. Uh, so here we are. It's really good to get the entire month of August, you know, in a classroom. Uh, you got to get that set in there. So Now, the nice thing will be that, you know, when Thanksgiving comes, my spring semester will have ended. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll take that trade. I really will because, <laughs> I mean, uh, spending August in the air conditioning, not because I'm lazy, but because I have to work. Makes me feel a little bit less, you know, morally complicit. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I, I like that. And Nathan, of course, has a great uh, background in theology. And so I think uh, his insight will help give us a lot of uh, understanding as to where this 
pamphlet is coming from. And incidentally, were you guys either one aware of this? Or uh, I totally remember this when I was in school. Had you heard of this or? Uh, I mean, I was I became aware of this particular pamphlet uh, when I was in college. Uh, and I can't remember if I've told the story on this show or not, but there was a used bookstore in Johnson City, Tennessee, where I attended college, uh, whose owner had a a perverse little sense of humor about evangelical theology, uh, and he actually dedicated a shelf of this used bookstore to different books about when the world will end, <laughs> and he lined them up by year. So starting in about 1983, you could buy a book from 1983 up to about 1997 that said the world would end in that year. No, 1998 is when it ended, because the title of that one was uh, 666 plus 666 plus 666 equals 1998. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, that guy, I, he's my hero. Um, <laughs> Coyle, Coyle, have you heard of this one before? Uh, I have heard of it, but uh, probably not in 1988 because I was not old enough to be hearing of that sort of thing then. Uh, so, yes, I, I had heard of it. I had never read it until you uh, thrust it upon us. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, uh, it's it's been sort of floating around. Um, uh, I well, largely from writers that I like or agree with who say this stuff is just rubbish. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously it's, you know, 2018, what are we 30 years beyond that now? And, uh, and, uh, yeah, this is maybe an anniversary show. Maybe that's the reason I chose it. We're hitting the third. I, I wondered about that. Yeah. We're, we're 20 years out. And actually it's, I bet, <laughs> so it was, this is August. Yeah. It was probably about 30 years ago. Exactly. When this thing was being circulated because the dates that it's predicting is early September and, um, September 11th. Yes. Uh, <laughs> which is, that, that is, I'm sure some other book will be about that now. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, the, I, I totally remember this. So I was in school still and I remember stacks of these books. It was a small little pamphlet. Um, and, and I'll put a link to the actual document on the show notes. Um, the internet archive has it, um, and you can download a PDF of it for free. And so I will, uh, in the show notes, for those of you who are interested in looking at it, um, I'll put a, a link to that so you can actually take part of the crazy with us. But in its original form, this was a little pamphlet kind of about the size of a chick track probably. Um, but oriented um, vertically instead of horizontally. And I, I, we had stacks of them in the foyer of our church. And this was written by a guy named Edgar C. Wisenant. And uh, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, who apparently was some NASA scientist who, who got into uh, this kind of biblical prophecy sort of uh, culture and, and wrote this pamphlet. But this was a pretty big phenomenon in the late eighties. I mean, you're coming up on an election year, right? This was uh, the, the Bush one election year. So you have the sense the Reagan era was ending uh, one way or the other. And so you had a sense of change. And I think that there was something in the air among evangelicals that was, everybody was freaking out about. Right. And so um, uh, with the, you know, the ending of the Reagan era, it probably inspired uh, this, this kind of work. But I totally remember there were millions of copies of this distributed all over the country. It had um, quite an impact on things. And it's probably about 30 years ago exactly that I was reading it. And I remember being in school on those those three days that he, he selected. It's going to be one of these three days. Um, I remember being in school just like having the hardest time concentrating. Every time I'd hear a noise or a bell would ring, I would freak out. You know, uh, it really did have a profound impact on on me as a, as a kid. Um, 
although I didn't and still don't understand a lot of the uh, the mathematics and, and the calculations that he was making. It's very uh, it's very um, detailed and and obscure to me. But uh, but yeah. So anyway, I'm really happy to talk about this um, with you guys. Um, Nathan, I think you wanted to open the show a little bit with a little bit of background about where this kind of reading from the Bible comes from. Oh, before we get to that, I forgot. Um, do you want to make some Christian humanist announcements? Yeah, yeah. The uh, Theology Beer Camp is coming up uh, August 16th through 18th in Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, I found out actually just within the last uh, 48 hours that I'm going to be featured a lot more prominently in this one. Uh, than I was in the last one. Uh, in fact, you know, uh, Trip Fuller informed me that I'm going to be running a workshop. I'm like, oh, thanks, Trip, for giving me ten whole days to think about that. Uh, <laughs> the, the teetotaler, but, the teetotaler, running a workshop. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I, the guy who can't have a beer because of his contract <laughs> at the uh, even at the Pentecostal College, right? Um, but it is in uh, Asheville, North Carolina, as I said. Uh, if you use the code HUMANIST in all caps, you can get a $75 discount on the ticket. Uh, so if you are interested and if you have the flexibility of schedule this late in the game uh, to come out, out on August 16th, uh, I'd certainly be glad to see uh, any listeners there who could drop in. And Asheville is a lovely city, uh, by the way. I, oh, I, I love La- Asheville. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, it's really, really cool. It's like Athens if it didn't wasn't overrun with rich white students. Um, it's it's very, very cool. Um <laughs> Yeah. Um, and yeah, so that uh, and the, the Christian Humanist podcast will be booting up here as the sem- as everyone else's semester gets started. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. David and Michael uh, teach at, you know, more uh, sensible colleges. Uh, so whenever they're actually in classes, uh, we're going to be uh, releasing new episodes on Tuesday mornings as we have for the last few years. So uh, if you're not subscribed, go ahead and subscribe so you can get the first one on your listening device. I doubt that there's probably three people who listen to this show that don't, don't already listen to yours, but just in case, for the benefit of those three people. <laughs> um, and, uh, and and Coil, I know City of Man, you guys have stuff. Uh, you've been re- pretty regularly producing stuff. You just did a recent Ancient Asides, I know. Yeah, that recent in that we recorded it like a year and a half ago. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, so it just dropped it. recently. Uh, we've we've got a couple more. I don't know. I don't know when this will post, uh, but we'll have one coming out on uh, femininity, uh, and then one on the decline of Western civilization, and then a handful of other things we're working on too. Are you going to be talking about Alan Bloom on that episode? You know, we didn't talk about Bloom. Oh, okay. Uh, what was Jonah Goldberg part of the conversation? Man, you know, recorded that a while ago. I don't remember. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay, okay, okay. So that's another one that's been in the, in the, in the machine for a while. I mean, Western civilization is always declining, so it's it's sort of <laughs> perpetually timely. <laughs> um, and of course, the rest of the network has been um, doing some great stuff. Book of Nature seems to be on a, a productive spurt again. Uh, they're putting mm-hmm. out a few things, um, and Christian Feminist Podcast is pretty regular. And um, I always forget to plug um, before they were live. Every time I plug the network, I always forget before they were live, um, probably because I have a disdain for Disney. And I, but it, and it's. And it's <laughs> So, uh, but uh, although I will say I just watched Christopher Robin and it's kind of amazing. But um, um, but yeah, before they were live is just now getting into the movies that probably most people have heard of. I think they just did like Cinderella. Right, right. right? They just released an episode on Alice in Wonderland. Oh, the one before it. that was on Cinderella. So yeah, yeah, we're out of the 1940s and the package films <laughs> and the things that really only Disney wonks like Michael Farmer watch. 
uh, and into things that you've probably seen with children at some point. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely worth your listen, and uh, and they do a great job on that show as well. Um, and uh, and of course, profiles Christian Humanist profiles is our big. Uh, way to get free books from academic publishers. Um, yes, and, indeed. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, uh, and, and nail awesome interviews with really cool people. So, um, so uh, the network is busy. Um, so now back to 88 reasons why the rapture was supposed to have been in 1988, but obviously wasn't. So um, uh, Nathan, what, where does this kind of come from? There's a culture, there's a tradition, right? Sure. I mean, the word rapture, I mean, is a Latinate word that just simply means being taken away in some sense. It's often used psychologically for someone who is uh, taken away from a normal state of mental awareness uh, into, you know, well, I mean, you know, it's roughly equivalent to the uh, Hellenic, Hellenic word ecstasy, right? It's standing mm. outside of oneself. Um, in the 19th century in American Protestantism, uh, a certain kind of Bible reading arises uh, that wants to take the various passages about the end of the age in the New Testament and basically create one unified timeline in a sort of jigsaw manner. Uh, so, I mean, in this timeline, you know, you have an end of an age that's coming usually uh, at the end of the 19th century, but then once that, once that rolls along, it gets pushed ahead, and then that time comes along, it gets pushed ahead, and so on and so forth. And, you know, really... In my circles, and this is probably a reflection of the people that I spend time with more than the state of uh, Christian publishing, it kind of hit its its height uh, with the Left Behind novels of the late 20th, early 21st centuries. Uh, I haven't heard as much about it since then, but like I said, I'll, I'll grant the possibility that's just you know a reflection of the fact that I don't spend as much time around uh, rapture-minded people as that. Within this timeline, the rapture is a particular moment. Uh, that again is cobbled together out of the first Thessalonians passage about the sound of the trumpet and being caught up in the air. Uh, the second Peter passage about the conflagration that will reduce everything to fire. And Revelation 7 to a large extent in which uh, St. John the seer uh, looks around and sees people from every uh, language and tribe and nation uh, gathered together around the throne. When you try to put all those into a single timeline, they seem to come before some of the really bad apocalyptic things that the New Testament holds for the end of the age. Uh, and so a doctrine arises called the rapture, uh, in which the faithful, those who have been loyal to uh, Jesus Christ, uh, are taken away from the earth before the earth goes through its tribulation, and it becomes the tribulation, uh, or, you know, Really, that word, I mean, has the connotation of a trial, uh, but this is more of a just an outright punishment because, you know, the outcome is already pretty much determined. So all of that is to say that when uh, this pamphlet comes out, you can use the word the rapture. Uh, and within those circles within, you know, largely North American Protestantism, Protestantism, although North American missionaries certainly carried it elsewhere in the world, uh, it generally means a moment in which those who are most faithful depart from the scene and whatever happens afterwards is God's wrath poured out on those who are not faithful, the wicked, the un unrighteous, so on and so forth. I want to say real quick, Danny, and then I'll, I'll lateral back to you, um, that this is a very, very new way to read these uh, end-of-the-age passages uh, in the New Testament largely, although certainly they, they hark back to Ezekiel 38, Daniel 12, passages like that. 
Uh, you know, there is no single way that people read it before, roughly speaking, the 1820s. Uh, but I mean, if you read around in, you know, historical biblical hermeneutics, it's pretty much agreed upon that the age in which we, in this uh, ever-changing world in which we live in, uh, you know, <laughs> this age that we inhabit will come to an end. I mean, that's fairly evident in the New Testament. The ways that they have, that Christian writers have dealt with that and Christian preachers uh, sometimes is to, you know, take the plurality of images as, you know, uh, different allegorical representations of, of, you know, the contingency and the impermanence of our age. Uh, sometimes they do say, you know, this one is the real timeline and these others are kind of glancing off of it. What makes rapture thinking particular uh, is that you try to take every passage and try without repetition to piece them all into a single strand or sequence. All right. Now that uh, comes from my relatively limited reading in American church history and American theology. We do have on the show uh, someone who wrote a dissertation on an American the theologian. So, uh, Coyle, uh, what else is there to say about rapture thinking? Nice segue. Yeah, well, um, <laughs> so uh, I, I, I don't know. Uh, tells you the, the quality of my dissertation, I suppose. Uh, well, or that your dissertation dealt with the 18th century rather than the 19th. It, that, that's what I was just going to say, right? Right. So, so I, I don't know about specifically uh, the idea of the rapture. I, I know that there is a long tradition of this this flavor of, of reading the Bible, I I don't really want to say it's it's exactly the same thing, but you have you know in, in the nineteenth century certainly you've got uh, uh you know William Miller right uh, up in New England who uh, who predicts that the uh, the uh, Jesus will return on October twenty second eighteen forty four and like you know thousands of people descend on Boston waiting on this to happen, uh, and when Jesus doesn't come back it's it's called the Great Disappointment. Um, which I think is just a great title. Uh, I think that's also where the Seventh Day Adventists come from. They uh, they they say something like uh, Jesus did return, but it was a spiritual returning, and I don't really understand all of that. But there there there's there's uh, so things like this have happened before. Uh, I actually brought a quote. Um, let's see, uh, this is this is one of my favorite uh, uh, favorite quotes from church history. So, commenting on Ezekiel thirty eight. This author writes, uh, Russia will burst forth, overcome all resistance, march to Palestine, uh, and there, unsuccessful in achieving the evil thing it has set its heart upon, God will avenge his own by the most horrific judgments which are described in the next chapter as poured out upon the guilty and ambitious confederacy. There will be an alliance of Russia, the Muslims, and the whore of Babylon in the east, against which will stand Israel and our noble fatherland for God, for the Bible, for liberty, for life, faithful even to the last." That's beautiful. Uh, so this is what's that? <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, I know, right? It's moving. Uh, uh, so this was uh, John Cumming uh, writing in his book The End uh, in 1855 about the Crimean War. Wow. Uh, so I mean, this 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 kind of thinking's been around, uh, and even uh, of course you have the apocalyptic movements in the Middle Ages, uh, and you have uh, uh, writers like the uh, the medieval Italian whose name I'm blanking on, but who uh, who wrote that you know we're we're coming to the end of the age of the sun and we're coming up on the age of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so so this this desire to pinpoint the date of the end uh, of the end of the age. I mean that's that's a longstanding thing. Now the the idea that there will be a, a snatching away of believers kind of immediately before this extended period of tribulation and millennium and so on. I don't know when that comes up. Uh, yeah, I mean, this, in my, again, limited reading, I mean, I can't find anything before about the 1820s. 
Right. So, so, so people are doing stuff sort of like this prior to that. Uh, but this, this sort of exp- explicit way of doing things. And I, I have, I have thoughts on why this might be different than some of those, those previous attempts, but maybe we should, we should sit on that for a while. Sure. Sure. And that, yeah, I mean the medieval example coil that I remember best is the uh, millennium cult of the year AD 1000 where you had right. mass suicides because they thought that, you know, the millennium it's the year 1000 after all. Uh, has come and therefore, you know, Christ is coming back. And, you know, when they don't see the guy from their frescoes appearing in the sky, you know, a lot of people kill themselves. Right. Yeah. And, and again, Reagan is the age of Reagan is coming to an end. Right. And so this pamphlet fits right into that pattern. Right. There's there's something there's a change in the air and uh, and therefore it must mean something cosmic. Um, well, and you have and, you know, this is a we'll probably get to this in more detail later, but you have uh, the very publicized meetings between Gorbachev and Reagan and, you right. know, the the. And Coyle, I didn't know that the fascination with Russia went all the way back to the 1840s. That that, that, that was really fa- melts my brain. <laughs> that was fascinating. Um, but you know, I mean, the idea that you know the the great Satan figure of the 20th century is all of a sudden sitting down with Ronald Reagan uh, had to be a factor in you know the the concern here as well. Well, I, I think it's. Uh... If, and and I, I have basically no Hebrew, but from what I understand, one of the words used in Daniel or Ezekiel, I think I think probably Ezekiel, uh, for one of these northern tribes is is something like rush, like the transliteration ah, of it in okay, English is okay. rush. Yeah, yeah. So people who who know just enough Hebrew to be really dangerous, uh, <laughs> kind of latch on to that. That's that's sort of my understanding of what happens. Right, there. and I mean it's it's amusing too because they didn't become Russians until about the eighth century A.D. when Vikings settled the right. area. The Rus, right? right? The, the yeah, tri- yeah, they were called, yeah, yeah, the Rus. I'm, well, I it's prophecy guys. I mean, yes. Come on. Yeah, I, yeah. Some someone who actually studies history is going to kick my butt on that one. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> But no, no, that, but you're, you're totally right. The, the roost, I mean, that was, they were a Viking, you know, that were, that was a Viking out off, that was a, you know, outpost or whatever. And so, um, yeah. And so one thing that kind of stands out to me making connections, I guess we've done the show long enough that this is connected to other things that we've talked about. Clearly Coyle and I, when we did the, uh, the evangelicalism, um, episode, there's a lot, um, connected in that history here with where this sort of, approach to the Bible comes from, right? And I, another episode that we have in our, our back catalog is on uh, Mark Knoll's book, Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. Um, mm-hmm. And both of those, um, I mean, both of those episodes talked about the role of biblicism as kind of central in the evangelical identity. And I can't help but wonder if the method of reading the Bible in this kind of really grand narrative sort of way you have to make every piece of it fit as one cohesive whole as if it were written by a single person at in one sitting kind of you know um uh if that is somehow i mean it seems to be inseparable from evangelical one of the tenets of evangelicalism this idea of biblicism uh and the authority of the bible is this not just sort of a natural place uh for that um ideology to to lead to well, it's certainly one species of, of reaction against theological modernism and modern biblical scholarship. Yeah. Uh, you know, the historicizing tendency of, of, the, of modern biblical studies. Um, I can definitely see this as, you know, a, a response against that, even given that, you know, this predates Velhausen's prolegomenon of the history of Israel by a good 50 years. But, I mean, 
the fact that it took off in new ways in the 20th century uh, strikes me as, you know, um, an intelligible response to those movements. Um, Coil, I mean, you know, that when it comes to the, you know, the, I don't even know what to call it. I mean, you know, uh, it, it harks back for me because I was in college at the time to that uh, wacky little book Bible Code that came out in the late 90s. <laughs> um, you know, this idea that, you know, the, the gematria that, you know, the rabbis got mocked for is suddenly something for evangelicals. It seems like this is, is emerging out of that same movement. Yeah. I, I and again, I'm, I'm not familiar enough with, uh, with what's, what's going on. Uh, my, uh, my, my gut says that, uh, what, what's happening is a, both in the 19th century and then especially in the 20th century is a sort of a revived interest in, uh, uh, like Jewish sources, which I is you know sort of what you're saying, uh, but the, mm-hmm. the the question is why, right? Why why is that happening now? Uh, I I don't know that it's just a a desire for a grand narrative. I, I think you sort of see that all along. Yeah, um, I agree with that. I mean, that's you know what what is Aquinas doing in the Summa if not coming up with a, a grand narrative of some kind? Sure. Uh, but I think there's a a combination of these sources being available, uh, sort of widely available uh, for for the first time ever. Uh, available in translation, especially. Uh, and in the 20th century, of course, you have the the aftermath of the Holocaust and the creation of Israel mm-hmm. uh, yep. seem to be pretty pretty clearly important events, uh, both psychologically and uh, in sort of real-world practical politics uh, that, that people want to be able to understand and to fit in. Uh, now, now, again, I, I think they're not necessarily going about it the best way, uh, but there's, there's at least some... Uh, uh, something understandable about the desire to to be able to read your newspaper and say I I I get what's going on in the world. Uh, it's it's not just random chaos. It's it's not just uh, uh, you know evil people doing awful things, but there is some kind of order behind it. Yeah, and I think I mean the big takeaway for me is that it's important to understand that that way of reading the Bible is not natural. I mean, it comes out of a very specific time, right? And and it's actually quite recent in the history of Christianity that people have understood those prophetic passages in, right. in this way. I right? mean, as does every way of reading the Bible. I mean, we yeah. should be very clear about that. I mean, yeah. you know, the reason that we study church history is not to discover the real way to read the Bible, but to notice differences in ways of reading the Bible so that we can be aware of our own contingency. Yeah, exactly. Right. And I think that folks who are like kind of knee deep in this way of approaching the Bible are unaware of that contingency. They just think of this as, as the natural pure way of reading the Bible because it's just me in the text apparently. Right. Um, and and Mm -hmm. so, I mean, it's not, but they think it is. And so, and also, I mean, it's, I mean, just as a side note and not to, you know, throw a hand grenade into this, but it's, um, This that way of reading the Bible is also arises with the kind of um, creationism um, as we currently know it. Right. I mean, they kind of generally come out of the same time period and they're both rather new ways of thinking about scripture um, that kind of both have their genesis around this this 19th century time. Um, And so, yeah, I think that there's something um, in correlation is not causation, but it's it's interesting. I I thought about that, actually. Yeah. Uh, uh, it wouldn't surprise me if there's a 
if the subset of people who get weird about first things are also the subset of people who get weird about last things I, like that. Yes. Oh, what a great way to put it, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, you're totally right. Um, because of this literalist uh, approach to the Bible um, that comes out of a very specific um, evangelical moment uh, in, uh, in in Christian history. Um, so, all right, let's uh, kind of, we've talked about this in dispensationalism. It's obviously part of that tradition, right? Um, let's kind of get into the text itself. You guys have a lot of really interesting notes. What are some things, and I don't know, maybe I, since Nathan took the last one first, Coil, if you want to begin with something that stands out to you from the actual pamphlet that is uh, particularly interesting and, and just to give us a sense of this document and it's sprawling and it's hard to follow. And, and so we're not certainly not going to cover it in its totality, but yeah, man, I, uh, I, I wouldn't even know where to start with this other than uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure there, despite the title, there are not actually 88 reasons <laughs> Uh, there, there are only 86, at least in the, the version I have, uh, which, which tells you that there, despite all of the, you can't see the air quotes on the, on, over the, the podcast, but despite all of the math, uh, they're not actually that <laughs> concerned with detail, right? I mean, uh, uh, this is, this is sort of a shotgun blast of stuff, uh, that, that, uh, the, the goal is really, I think to wear people down, uh, yeah. rather than to actually convince anyone of anything. Yeah. Um, uh, and as I was, I was reading through, I think the, one of the one of the notes I took was that most of these, I guess they're fine. I mean, it's it's not really the sort of thing I agree with, uh, and I I didn't check the math, so maybe maybe they're not. Um, but you know, uh, if if someone wants to believe some, you know, most of this stuff, whatever. I, I had I been living in you know, 1987, uh, and had I been reasonably theologically informed. I, I like to think I would have disagreed with most of this, but I, I wouldn't have just point blank been like, oh, that's that's terrible and you're stupid for believing it or evil for believing it or whatever. Uh, there are a handful of them, though, uh, that are – there's probably a, a, a more uh, peacemaking way to say this. There are a handful of these reasons that are just heretical garbage. Okay, thank you. Uh, <laughs> so uh, uh, so reason uh, 43 uh, – Basically, is astrology. Uh, yes. You know, we're, well, no, we're, well, we're, you got to read the first line in reason forty-three, so the r- listeners get a sense of the literary sure. style. How about this additional sign in the sky? Were you aware <laughs> that Mar- <laughs> were you aware that Mars is regarded as the war planet, and it has two moons, one of which is Phobius, fear, and the other demons, devils, uh, and has historically been associated <laughs> with war as it comes close to Earth in its orbit. So beyond the freshman comp style there. Yeah. And the first one's you, Demos, you got the moon right? Of Mars named wrong. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, Coyle. I, I, you keep rolling with this. No, I, no, no. I, 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 that, that can just kind of stand on its own, I think. Uh, and there are some other, I mean, things, things along those lines where clearly this guy has this thing he believes and he is going to use whatever he can to justify it. Uh, so he... In reason fifty six, uh, he appeals to a psychic, which you know, again, as as Christians, that's there. There are things we can disagree on as Christians, but you know, <laughs> g- going to spiritualists and mediums really isn't one of them. Well, can I uh, dwell on that one real quickly? Because um, yeah, sure. that yeah. one stands out but, to me. But Danny, you have to read the first line of this one. Okay, <laughs> um, America's famous psychic said that a world leader. <laughs> Not just any old psychic now. This is America's famous psychic. <laughs> Said that a world leader was born on the 5th of February, 1962, somewhere in the Middle East. And this was the greatest vision she ever had. And so he doesn't I have name- great visions. They're the best visions. <laughs> <laughs> 
believe me. Yeah. Um, um, but there's a, uh, and there's no more detail beyond that. So I kind of did some like looking into it. I went, I went to Starbucks the other night with my kid and, uh, and I was Googling all kinds of bizarre things, but, um, the, um, I, I would pay a significant amount of money to watch you Google that in Starbucks. <laughs> It was, yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was, I kept my computer screen covered here, but, um, but it's Jean Dixon. Okay. So she was like the lady, you, I don't know if anybody remembers this. Um, she was like the lady who would be on like the national, like those tabloids predicting this is Jean Dixon's predictions for the upcoming year. And, you know, okay, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. it's going to be, uh, you know, Phyllis Diller will marry, you know, Rock Hudson or so, you know what I'm saying? Like all kinds of bizarre, <laughs> like, uh, predictions that she, where I came up with those two names, I have no idea. Um, but wherever uh, she would come up with these kind of bizarre celebrity-driven um, bits of, um, of prophecy, right? And so she was like kind of a celebrity prophet. And and um, and so and and another thing that cracks cracks me up about that in bold print right after this line, he wants to like reclaim his orthodoxy coil here. A prophet of God is always one hundred percent correct all the time. But by the psychic's own admission, she is only 70% correct. <laughs> so, so it's okay for me to use her as long as we understand that she's only 70% correct. Um, um, but, and honestly, I, the, the way I found out who that was is I just Googled that date, um, the, the 5th of, what was it, uh, February 1962, um, and mm-hmm. just to see what comes up. And actually, she must have stolen that <laughs> from somebody else, actually, because there was a, a guy named, oh gosh, Something Herzog, where is it? Hold on a second. Uh, oh, Leonard Herzog was his name, and in the eight, eighteen nine, in the around the turn of the nineteen of the eighteenth, the twentieth century, he actually made that prediction that the Antichrist would be born on February fifth, um, in nineteen sixty-two. And so, Jean Dixon not only is a seventy percent psychic, she's a plagiarist in in her psychic predictions, um, apparently. <laughs> and uh, and so, Weisnatier is actually going into that. He's using a plagiarist psychic who's only right seventy percent of the time uh, to to base his uh, fifty-sixth reason uh, for why the rapture. I mean, can a psychic ever be a plagiarist? Really. <laughs> true i guess she's reading something right and so um nathan you had something to add to that oh no no no! i was just gonna ask danny when you were googling around i mean was anyone famous actually born on that date you know i didn't notice anything my fear would be that it was obama (laughs) it's like like, (laughs) if this is obama's birthday i'm gonna crap (laughs) but uh it, it wasn't um and so yeah nobody that i could actually um that stands out that stood out to me uh as being born that day that was at all relevant to this conversation and so i gotcha i yeah, gotcha so well no i mean i i would just be amused if you know i can't even think i mean who would be that age if you know the drummer for the kinks was born on that day or something <laughs> like that i <laughs> I'm sure someone was right. Someone yeah, famous I- was obviously born on that day. Um, but yeah, nobody who's anybody is associated with this conversation. Um, yeah, that that to me, Coyle, I totally agree. Um, the heretical, like parallel sources that he goes into um, to make mm-hmm. this really fundamentalist argument is fascinating to me. And 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 to me, you know, I want to make broad unfair connections um as, as always on this show um and so, but doesn't it remind you of the trump voter right <laughs> going out of their way <laughs> to uh to bring something unorthodox into orthodoxy uh and so yeah i absolutely think nathan 
Well, and I just wanted to add, the, you know, Coyle's absolutely right that, I mean, those are alarming. I want to talk a little bit about the mathematical approach to these texts, though. I mean, one thing about uh, gematria is that it often reaches for sort of universal aphorisms yeah. when it does its math. Uh, this is a kind of mathematical approach to the text that basically makes the Bible irrelevant for the first 1,800 years of its you know, authority within the church. Uh, and I mean, that's honestly what bothers me the most of the, about the way that a lot of people read the book of Revelation uh, is that in our rush to make it a book about our moment in history, uh, we basically make it so that those Christians who are being persecuted by the Roman Empire in the, you know, first and early second century A.D. Uh, really have a piece of nonsense on this scroll in front of them. Uh, and I mean, honestly, that, that that's one of the things that has led me to read Revelation the way that I do. I mean, when I teach it, and I've taught it in churches probably a half dozen times, I always say, you know, our first task is to say, what do the first people who ever hear this read hear? And once we've got that in place, we can talk about what it means for us. But I always want to make the 21st century reader someone who is eavesdropping on a very old conversation mm. before we start to make it our book. Yeah, and and do you want to talk, I guess, while we're on this subject, um, a little bit about the numbers? And so there are certain patterns, like literary patterns in the Bible, where you see the number 40 it becomes a motif, right? Uh, and you see these, sure, these, sure. these things re repeated. He takes For, 40 that, years in the wilderness after the Exodus, 40 days of Noah's flood, yeah, 40 days of Jesus in the wilderness. Exactly. You know, the, and, and there is a numerology to the Bible, yeah. all right? But there are different ways to read it. And, uh, you know, like I said, this is what fascinates me about texts like this, uh, is that this is a distinctly 19th and 20th century American way to read these texts, uh, to take these numbers and, once again, to make them applicable only in one place, rather than making them sort of archetypal patterns that you, you know, detect and perhaps impose uh, <laughs> on history. Uh, this is saying, you know... Uh, the writers of the Bible might have thought that it meant something else, but I'm going to tell you what it has really meant. And everyone who came before me, you, I mean, not all books say it this way, but I mean, the implication is they got it wrong where I'm getting it right. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's interesting because, I mean, as Coyle said before, the general pattern is not something new. You know, I mean, uh, one thing that uh, David Bentley Hart said when I interviewed him about his New Testament uh, is that, you know, modern scholars are very afraid of supersessionism when we do our New Testament scholarship. And we're right to do so. I mean, you know, 70 years ago, supersessionism led to, you know, one of the great crimes in human history. Okay. But in another sense, there's hardly anything more Jewish than being supersessionist. You know, you look at Isaiah He's talking about the faithful remnant as opposed to all those schmucks <laughs> who are really God's people, right? You look at Daniel, there's going to be a resurrection, and you know the people who are really God's people are going to be raised to glory, and the people who are just you know pretenders are going to be raised to eternal shame, right? And so on and so forth. So that you know, I mean, when you get to again, you know, the New Testament book of Revelation, uh, you get this uh, appropriation of symbols for the present moment, right? I mean, you know, uh, the word Rome, uh, if it ever gets mentioned in the book of Revelation, I'm not sure that it does, 
it gets eclipsed by a long shot by mentions of Babylon. Mm. Now, the city of Babylon hasn't existed for 200 years before the book of Revelation comes along. I It took me a lot of research in seminary because I, you know, I had this thought, okay, where did Babylon go? And the answer is that every ancient empire wanted a hunk of Babylon's famous brick walls to be part of their cities. Mm. So people literally looted Babylon until there was no more Babylon. Hmm. Little trivia, but the point is, whenever the book of Revelation talks about, you know, Babylon falling, Babylon oppressing, the whore of Babylon, so on and so forth, these are all references not to the historical Babylon that hasn't existed for 200 years, but to Rome. Hmm. So it's not something that is alien even to the text of the New Testament, much less for the 1,800 years between Revelation and 88 Reasons. But what it is, you've got a confidence here, I'll put it that way, that everything before this was ultimately irrelevant, that the only thing that the text means is our moment. And Danny, I can't remember if I'm actually still answering the question you posed. I'm sorry. Well, no, I was just asking. <laughs> Can you follow. remind me? <laughs> <laughs> you were talking about the numbers, the use of uh, of numbers, and 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 there's not just it's not just and, and uh, I guess we'll get to maybe if there are some compelling reasons that he gives um, that are at least marginally compelling uh, where I, I can actually see why, where someone would come up with something like that. Um, and, and I'll save this for that. But the idea of um, well, let me just give it right now. So the idea that in 1948, the state of Israel is formed 40 years after that is 1988. I can see how somebody in this mindset can look at that historical event and connect it to this larger grand pattern of the number 40 in, in, you know, Christian and Jewish history. Right. Uh, and, and try and make something, you know, predictive and not descriptive out of it. And so uh, that to me makes a little bit of sense um, as to how they could use that number. Now there are other like calculations where they do additions. Uh, there's like adding numbers of years um, based on something in the passage of Daniel uh, and, and they'll add 70 plus 32 plus four, you know what I'm saying? And come up with these dates uh, that right. gets and really then if 365 bizarre. won't work. They'll say, well, it does say the birth of a new age and the time of gestation is 40 weeks. So that's 280. And well, at one point he actually says, remember the 1988 is a leap year. <laughs> that's somewhere in the Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah. So the, the idea, the way he uses numbers um, is um, pernicious, right? And, and it's a sloppy way of reading the Bible, but it also, I think, um, um, obscures more important uh, ways. There's something lost in reading the Bible this way, right? Um, this, this literally, you're looking, you're missing the forest for the trees, I think. Um, and, and later on, I want to talk about being blinded by all the trees and the kind of rhetorical uh, hermeneutic effect of that. But um, uh, Coyle, did you have anything to follow up with that? Uh, I mean, if we're going to get to the, the hermeneutic stuff, I mean, it, it, it seems that, and this is sort of the, the heart of the heresy of the various things, I think, is uh, that he's uh, at, at best. So assuming that he hasn't just made something up and is using the Bible to sort of justify this this thing that's totally out of his own mind, uh, uh, assuming that he's genuinely trying to get this from Scripture, uh, at best, he is interpreting the New Testament using the Old Testament. Yeah. Uh, and I think he explicitly says he's doing that. Yeah. He's like, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm 
I'm I'm going to uh, uh, I'm going to read Revelation through the filter of Daniel, and and that I think is is the real kind of dividing line uh, between this particular approach. Uh, and I don't I don't know if that's something that all dispensationalists do, or just the ones that I've happened to read. Uh, but uh, uh, that would be a, a dividing point between that stripe of dispensationalist and all of those earlier uh, uh, sorts of ways of interpreting Revelation that I'm familiar with, anyway. Uh, uh, sort of the traditional Christian way is no, we, we understand the old Testament in light of the new Testament, in light of the incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, in light of the second coming. That's, that's our filter by which we go back and look at the feasts, which he's obviously very big on, on, on the feasts and the, the dates of the feasts and so on. Uh, and, and he wants to turn that around and say, no, 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 this, this is the stuff that's really important. Uh, it's this new Testament stuff that's incidental and temporary. Yeah. Uh, it's mm. the stuff that's going to be passing away. Uh, and, and then we'll get back to, uh, with the restoration of Israel and eventually with the rebuilding of the temple, uh, we'll get back to this Old Testament stuff. And that's, I think, where the, the door is is really broken open for, for real genuine heresy. Yeah. And Andy Stanley would really hate that um, because um, he, he wants to give up the Old Testament. I'm just kidding. Um, well, yeah. It's, <laughs> no. it's, it's too hard for numbers. Well, I think that's probably the source of this, right? I mean, uh, 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 an old pastor of mine uh, said that there, there's basically no real teaching on the Old Testament in most evangelical churches. Uh, so once uh, you know, once someone does discover the Old Testament, all of a sudden they they sort of fling themselves uh, into it without any you know good guidance, uh, without without any uh, the good help. So before you know it, you know every Lord's Supper is a Seder meal, uh, and uh, and the temple is going to be reestablished and the sacrifices are coming back and so on. And yeah. and that's a failure of the evangelical church as a whole. Yeah, yeah, I, mm-hmm. and and this is my own, I guess you know, take on, I guess I have very limited theological like training. Right. And so I have to piecemeal and learn from people like you guys who, who do no more than I do. Um, my own kind of slant is that it's, I'm uncomfortable with reinterpreting the Old Testament in light of the New Testament on some level as well. Um, and I don't know if there's a, a, a theological tradition <laughs> that uh, that I could learn more about why that why I'm just I'm, I just feel like that's somehow um, I don't I don't understand. I, I don't know exactly how to say what I'm going to say. This is going to be a terrible podcast to listen to as I'm fumbling for words. Um, but I, I feel like there's something also uncomfortable for me about going back and resituating and reinterpreting um, the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew Bible and and adapting it to my worldview. Like, I feel like there's mm-hmm. something uh, there's something a little creepy about that for me personally. Um, Nathan, is there like, am I alone? Well, yeah, I mean, (laughs) there's certainly, I think a right concern, uh, especially in the last 70 years, but even before that, that uh, an ideological supersessionism often gives people a, uh, I'm I'm not going to call it a, a reason, but I will call it a rationalization for anti-Semitic violence. Mm. Um, and so, I mean, I, I think that people are rightly concerned about that possibility. Um, you know, I mean, the, the problem with that is that the rabbis themselves were doing it. Sure. So, I mean, you know, uh, I'm not saying that, you know, therefore, um, you know, an evangelical with a calculator should, you know, do this pamphlet, but I am saying that, you know, to say no one should ever read scriptural texts in a supersessionist manner actually eliminates a lot of the Jewish tradition just as fast as it eliminates the Christian tradition. Mm, okay. So, I mean, I, and you know, once I, 
once you know and and that's not my thought like i said i got it from david bentley hart and it's been troubling me for the years since i interviewed him uh but you know it makes me realize that the the dialectic of of hermeneutics uh is a lot more complicated than sometimes i would prefer i'd prefer a much simpler you know let's just read the text as it is but that itself arose in a historical moment right um now, I mean, the approach that I prefer, uh, of course, because there's very little in life that doesn't make me think of Dante, uh, is the, you know, the fourfold interpretation that he sets forth in his letter to, to Con Grande, right? And he didn't invent this, but I mean, it's, it's a nice, uh, succinct account of it, uh, where every text has a literal meaning, right? So, Danny, I mean, uh, on that level, I agree with you that, you know, we should read it on its own terms, with its own vocabulary, in its own historical moment, so on and so forth. But that the Bible is such an abundant gift from God that it always sustains at least a plurality of readings and probably a plurality beyond what you're ready to imagine right now. So, you know, Dante lays out the uh, literal, the moral, the anagogical, and the fourth one, Coyle, can you help me here? Uh the uh, apocalyptic, but that's not the right word for it. Yeah, that's uh, not his word, but yeah, let's call it the apocalyptic. Es- eschatological or something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's going to occur to me later on. Anyway, but, you know, I, the, my approach, Danny, I mean, is to just say that every passage of the Bible is abundant enough that it gives us more than one gift. So, I mean, you can read it in this allegorical way without taking away the literal. Both readings are there inherent in the text. And that's just the kind of gift that the Bible is. Um, yeah, and I'm much more comfortable with that, right? Um, and and you can sort of see things from multiple perspectives um, at the same mm-hmm. time, right? And, and it opens up these these kind of parallel worlds um, of interpretation. And and um, and actually, as you're talking, and I reached reached for my George Steiner um, after Babel, uh, which is a book about translation. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and I. It's been so many years since I've read it, but you, the, he, I think he has a fourfold hermeneutic uh, somewhere in that book as well uh, that um, mm-hmm. it, it, he uses the theorize uh, interpretation. It's been a while, some many years in grad school since I've read that, and so um, <laughs> so I, it's not available to me. And quickly flipping through, I couldn't find it. But um, uh, but yeah, absolutely. I think that that's a much more comfortable way for me to think of it. Uh, I was just talking with my wife. I there's a, a tradition of Christian Zionism um, and I'm mm-hmm. sure there are many variations on this and I'm not going to, uh, I hope not to insult anybody, but there is a strain of that that I feel is vaguely anti-Semitic, um, not, maybe not even vaguely, maybe overtly. Uh, and, and I feel like it's almost as if we need Israel to go ahead and build that temple so Jesus can come back, right? It's, it's, it's taking like the real historical people of Israel and cramming them into my, my ideological body. Right. And it's therefore kind of dehumanizing um, to to um, real people um, by thinking of them in this very limited way. Right. And this kind of multi um, textured approach that you're talking about, I feel like overcomes some of that um, in a very useful mm-hmm. way. So, yeah, uh, I tell you, I do the show so I can learn more myself. Right. And so this is <laughs> this has been <laughs> instructive for me. And, and thank you for the audience for putting up with my stammering there was as I got there. Um and one thing before we move on, um, 
there was another th- thing I noted at the very beginning. His first two reasons why the rapture will be in 1988 are not actually reasons why the rapture will be anytime. It's actually a, a justification for coming up with a date um, because he has to address the elephant in the room that Jesus said, no man can know the day or the hour. Right. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and I feel like there's a bit of Bill Clinton. That, what's the definition of is, is sort of yeah. thing going on here. Um, it, Cause he says, because you know, the world's big and there's, 12 time zones and so and so I can't give an hour because it's a different hour and a different day on the other side of the world so that's what he means by it and so um, what did you guys make of his uh, kind of cute uh, rhetorical uh, uh, fumbling at the very beginning of this thing I, I mean uh, obviously he's missed the point of that particular passage entirely <laughs> like the, the idea is nobody knows uh, you know jesus <laughs> yeah. could return tomorrow or it could ter- be a thousand years from now or five seconds from now like that's that's the point of the passage and he yeah gets gets weird with it again to to make this point that he wants to make yeah and then he and then he starts parsing i think nathan you wanted to talk about the use of greek he starts like uh oh man going into the like, <laughs> what the word no actually means and uh yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, when he talks about, you know, no man knows the hour, uh, he goes to, you know, some some lexica, which I commend, right? I mean, you should go to a Greek lexicon if you're going to study the Greek New Testament. Uh, but for that, he says that, you know, there are these two uh, very exact words for no in the New Testament. And Greek, unlike English, has words that only have one meaning, which what which is what makes it a holy language. And I think, have you read like two dialogues by Plato? Because uh, you know the whole point of that entire you know twelve hundred page corpus uh, is that people aren't quite sure what Greek words mean either. <laughs> but uh, then later on in the book, though, um, and I should have jotted this down, but I, I can't find it in my notes. Um, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's when, when he talks about, uh, you know, uh, oh, and I've got the phrase, it's fall away, but I don't have what, I don't have the page number on which uh, reason it is. Uh, but he says that, you know, uh, oh, it's when he's talking about, uh, you know, the, no, I can't remember. So, but he's talking <laughs> about something in, in terms of, you know, uh, something will fall away. And he says, well, actually, you know, that Greek word has a different connotation that simply means go away. Yeah. Uh, so we can still say that, you know, the rapture, as I understand it will happen because this passage isn't actually <laughs> applicable because Greek words are so flexible. <laughs> and so, you know, again, so he undermines I mean, his own a, argument, <laughs> e- either an unwitting or an unethical. And I mean, for Aristotle, those are pretty much the same thing. Uh, but you know, there is, a duplicity when it comes to, you know, the nature of translation, the nature of the Greek language and so on and so forth, uh, that, you know, runs through this thing that, uh, that, you know, just adds another layer to the duplicity here. Right. Uh, and you know, then you get, you know, the part that Coyle was talking about, you know, no man knows the day or the hour. Well, he didn't say week. <laughs> yeah. I know. I was thinking, okay, that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm giving you three days, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> anyone who has read again, you know, more than two or three books, I mean, is aware that you know the day uh, can refer more generally to a specific time. Uh, you know, the fact that he is so so exact with that, but then when it comes to what a year is, it can be 
a solar year or a lunar year or a gestational year or, you know, the year of the rat or whatever else that he goes to in here. Uh, again, I mean, the, there's some definite duplicity to this. Well, and if we're, if we're going like that particular approach, we could say no man knows the day, but women. <laughs> women know what day it's going to be. Ah, there you go. <laughs> I am no man, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's absolutely true. Yeah, I, I found that opening line to be really, uh, or the opening two reasons he, he dedicates to justifying the others. And as Coyle said also about whether there are actually 88 reasons, for example, not only, I mean, is it hard to come up with an 88, but reasons nine, 10 and 11 are one reason. Right. And so like there are, are uh, he combines things in, in very interesting ways. And so, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I want to hit two more things before we start wrapping up. And one um, is uh, we kind of already touched on it a little bit and coil your, um, bringing in the context from the the 19th century about Russia is just brilliant. I think because like there's like a real fixation on, on communism and and Russia in general, right. In this book. Um, And, and I, what is it about that? And, and how it works into, I mean, I, the, it's the sort of atheist state, right? And so it's kind of an obvious um, boogeyman for fundamentalist Christians. But like, I feel like there's that's the tip of a big iceberg in this culture. Uh, what, what are you guys' thoughts on that? I mean, the Cold War was scary. You know, uh, uh, the the threat of national destruction, you know, everyone has to deal with that. Right? That's I maybe we don't think of that really in the 21st century now, but uh, uh, you know, in the past at least, everyone's always had to worry about what if our country gets invaded and and we get wiped out. But uh, the idea of nuclear war, uh, I feel like our generation doesn't really think about that just because we've grown up with it. But the the boomer generation and the the uh, the previous generation certainly, the idea that a war could start that would you know, level the planet, uh, that, that has to affect you theologically, right? That, that has to affect the way you're, you're looking at things. Uh, and obviously, and, and I'm sure we'll get to this, uh, this, this gentleman doesn't think America is going to be the country to start that war. Uh, it's, it's going to be those godless Soviets. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're the bad guys. Uh, we're, we're the good guys. We're, we're on the side of real Israel. In fact, maybe we're even Israel ourselves. Oh, uh, not, not might be. I mean, well, I mean, in, in reasons, what is it? Number 67, he refers to America as Gentile Israel. Yes. Yeah. It, there's a couple yeah, times yeah, yeah. he uses that term. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh that's another one I had down as heretical garbage. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, the United States is Gentile Israel, and every blessing and every curse in the Bible applies to Gentile Israel, the United States, just as strongly as it applies to national Israel. Yeah. Uh, and again, there there are hermeneutical issues there. Yeah. Uh, uh, but there are political issues too. Yeah, right? that's I mean, just that, racist, that, kind of, you know. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, what an oxymoron, right? Gentile Israel. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I I, I think the. Uh, uh, the 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 desire to work the Cold War, uh, not just into sort of the the general uh, picture of the world uh, that the Bible gives, you know, as being in rebellion against God, uh, which of course would would include America as part of that rebellion, but the uh, the desire to fit this specifically into a period of revelation, so, such that we can understand it, uh, is is uh, is probably what's going on there with the Soviet Union. Uh, that combined with the the bad Hebrew that that we talked about earlier. <laughs> yeah, um, Nathan, did you have any thoughts on that? I think you had posed that question. 
originally. Yeah, you know, as I said, I mean, I, I don't want to make an absolute distinction between this and earlier forms of apocalyptic. After all, like I said, uh, the Babylon in the book of Revelation is never Babylon. It's always Rome. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's not Soviet Union as, you know, the Antichrist or whatever he calls it that, that bothers me so much as the Gentile Israel part. Uh, you know, I mean... And again, I mean, you can definitely piece together the historical uh, bits that probably lead to this, because, I mean, you've got this long American history of thinking itself as, you know, a new Israel, a city on a hill that has a manifest destiny, so on and so forth. I mean, you know, there's a long literary tradition of thinking of America as a sort of, you know, new Israel, just as, you know, Moscow uh, thought of itself as the third Rome. Uh and then on the other hand, you've got this new thing in history, namely the state that's calling itself Israel, uh, so that you have to do something with the fact that, okay, well, America, if it's going to remain Israel, it has to be some kind of Israel that can exist at the same time as a state called Israel in the actual place that used to be called Israel. <laughs> and, you know, the way that this book does it is with, you know, this turn of phrase that, you know, made my jaw drop. Uh, but it has its own internal logic. We'll just call it Gentile Israel. <laughs> yeah. If anybody out there is frustrated with um, younger generations, if there are any boomers out there who's frustrated with the younger generation's distrust of institutions, read this book and think about <laughs> you know, There's a good reason for cynicism among the experts here so, and millennials. Um, and, and just to kind of go on, uh, this is uh, connected to the Russia thing thing. Um, but it's also a, uh, a, a good example of the numerology, um, but mm-hmm. also his writing style, which is delightful. Reason number 61. <laughs> On October 4th, 1988, Gregorian calendar ends at 5 p.m. when World War III ends in Israel. Communism as a government... <laughs> Will be um, seventy years old, or seventy years, three hundred sixty-four days, and twenty-three hours old, and by then will have been destroyed by God as a nation. They never reach seven p.m. fourth of October, nineteen eighty-eight, the hour which starts their seventy-first birthday, without World War Three already with starting, which destroys them. Psalm ninety ten says, seventy years are the days of man's years." Now that is just beautiful timing in anybody's language. <laughs> That is like, and that is some beautiful writing in in crazy person language there. Um, But uh, and and so yeah, that's an example. That's a place where the Russia thing coincides with the numerology thing, and that coincides with this really kind of weird folksy um, um, approach to uh, explaining himself. So um, let's move on then to uh, the last sort of big topic and then we'll have a wrap up. Uh, there's much, to, there's many, many things to talk about here. And I'm, I'm like really sad to have gotten to not have talked about many things, but if the listeners want to take a look at this thing and, and shoot back any thoughts that they have, I'd be happy to extend the conversation over on the Facebook page. Um, you guys keep talking about hermeneutics, right? Uh, and I think mm-hmm. that's an important um, aspect of this. And there's, there's a way in which reading this is just, it's like walking in a blizzard. There's so much flying in your face that you can't see anything. And, and I think that's a really <laughs> important um, 
feature of writing of this type, and I think it applies to, to a lot of things. I mean, conspiracy thinking in general. Um, mm-hmm. What are your What are your thoughts on this? Well, again, you know, tra- trying to keep in mind that my own hermeneutics is also historically contingent. Uh, I can still say that on an ethical level, you know, I, I think that a what I would call, you know, a, a historical narrative hermeneutics takes more seriously what's going on in the text than this kind of reading does. So to back up for a second, hermeneutics, you know, derived from the, the, the Greek god Hermes, the messenger god, is the scholarly discipline of examining how it is that we receive a written or a spoken message. Uh, and so, you know, a hermeneutic approach is an account of what you do when you read a text. So in this case, you know, 88 reasons why the rapture will be in 1988, the way that it goes about reading uh, is to take, and I think Danny's right here, you know, the root uh, mathematical equation here, 1948, the beginning of the state of Israel, plus 40 years, uh, the span of, you know, the wandering in the wilderness, and get to 1988. At that point, we're going to basically take every mention of birth, death, a span of years, a span of days, a span of minutes, anything in that text that's going to add up to 1988 or 1995. I love the fact that World War III started when I was a freshman in college and I never knew it. Um, And we are going to find every possible combination that's going to add up to the number that we determine with that first equation. One thing about, you know, hermeneutics that I learned as an undergraduate and certainly in seminary uh, is that to read ethically means to entertain the possibility that your first reading is not adequate to the full complexity of what you're looking at and that new data should be able to alter what it is that you're doing. This is called the hermeneutical circle. The details affect the whole just as the whole can affect the details. You know, it's something that, you know, Martin Heidegger and later uh, uh, Hans Georg Gadamer uh, were, you know, big advocates of. And it's what I teach my own students, you know. One thing that I really couldn't imagine this pamphlet doing is getting, you know, to the fourth paragraph after reason 88, if he had reached 88, (laughs) and saying, I've come to realize that, uh, you know, my readings in reasons 33 through 42 might be a little bit off because of this big picture concern that's emerged, right? That openness to change just isn't in this kind of reading, And as I said, you know, because we are human beings, even if we affirm that the scriptures are God-breathed and useful for teaching, reproach, correction, and the fourth item that I always forget in that list, which I do, we have to acknowledge that our own reading is always susceptible to change because we are limited mortal beings. This book doesn't do that. Mm. So, Coyle, that's my sermon. What would you say about the hermeneutical question? Yeah, again, I I just reiterate uh, that uh, the my my hermeneutical objection is that he is he is reading scripture uh, with the political nation state of Israel as the sort of goal and pinnacle of it, uh, yep. as opposed to reading it you know as a Christian where I would say no, it's it's about Christ, right? The the hermeneutical principle that ought to inform our our reading from you know Genesis to Revelation uh, is uh, uh, is 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 Christ, and and certainly. 
political Israel has a role to play in that in the Old Testament. Uh, I I don't think it has a role to play in that in uh, in 1948. Uh, but that's you know that's that's a different discussion that we could have. But only once we've sort of agreed on no, the Bible is actually about Jesus. It's not about uh, it's not about this uh, this this little chunk of desert. Um, but uh, yeah, that's that's I, I don't have the formal theological training, so I don't know that I want to say I don't want to say anything more than the general Sunday school answer of it's all about Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> but and it, and it comes out of this also this very literalist um, quest uh, to to make the Bible uh, and make every verse of the Bible both reach back towards or back for and up towards um, future verses in the Bible. Right. And so, um, and and as we were talking, we were talking about the connection between this and and creationist uh, approaches. Um, The very back page of the book is important dates. Um, The first one Mm -hmm. creation of earth 4,005 BC, right? Uh, You have this, uh, this very kind of 6,000 year um, earth um, uh, Mm -hmm. mindset that is, intimate i mean it's connect I and mean, it's essential for his math in a lot of places right uh and so it's a sense essential part of his predictions for the future right and so um absolutely i think there's a, a very um you have something you want to say and you find ways to make it happen right and in order mm-hmm. to do that you reach into your source text in this case the bible in all of its totality and you pull things out and pull things out of their context and recontextualize them, right? That is a that is the hermeneutic approach of this. And what you end up with is this because the 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 math is difficult, the Bible is giant and 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 layered. You end up with this like I said blizzard of information that you can't even wade through. Um and, but it's just almost like trying to give you fact after fact after fact and just the accumulation of facts will beat you into submission. <laughs> in, 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 right, right. I was I was going to say I, I don't know I don't have this like fully worked out but it, it's probably relevant that the uh, the passages out of scripture that he's using to do that are are not the clear and straightforward passages you know, yeah. it's it's the 70 weeks yeah. in Daniel and it's the uh, you know some of the more obscure bits of revelation uh, he's he's not going to Hebrews 9 and 10. Yeah. Uh, yeah. where it's, you know, the, the temple doesn't actually pay for your sins, only Jesus, like, you know, it, it's no, 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 right. it's the, the temple is going to be rebuilt and the temple is going to be this thing and the other thing that, that are somewhat vague and somewhat uh, usable to, to make your argument because who can, who can technically disagree with you in that particular passage yeah. if that's all you're using? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, and this might be too flippant and you guys can tell me if it is. But what it brings to mind as we talk about it here is the six degrees of Kevin Bacon game. <laughs> yeah. Because, <laughs> I mean, the whole point of that game, right, is not that Kevin Bacon actually has metaphysical standing as the center of the Hollywood universe, but that you could take any actor because actors co-star with other people and do, you know, six degrees of Julia Roberts, right? right? Uh, I have no idea why she was the one I picked first, but you get the point, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, the connections are the point, you know, the fact that someone named Kevin Bacon is what makes it funny. Yeah. But in this case, you know, the number 1,988, he's not taking it as a joke. He's not getting the joke here. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a, oh gosh, and the name is forgetting. There's a, a, a human tendency to see patterns in, in, in nature, right? Uh, when we look yeah. at clouds, I, there's a, it starts with a P. I can't remember the name of it. Um, the, and so we see a cloud that looks like a bunny. Um, oh, that looks like a bunny, right? And so our, our mind, mm-hmm. like, is pa- we're pattern seeking beings, right? And, uh, and, and that is, 
unleashed upon this uh in onto this document and trying to find patterns and and you talk about the bible code that was another um version of this um neil gussman on the facebook page mentioned harold camping um and a couple years ago he was making a similar prediction here um for for our time and uh and so yeah we find chaos and we try to form something out of the chaos that's just sort of part of human nature and when it's attached to a religious document like this um it's very very um unnerving and bizarre and conspiratorial and rambling right um right um, and i do want to say danny i mean because i was a preacher for a while i mean i think there are valid ways to situate your own narrative as analogous to and emerging from the biblical narrative but i would go back to to coyle's point that i mean what we need to reach for is not the obscure numerology, but the manifest narrative of Jesus and of his life and his teaching and his death and his resurrection in order to make sense of our narrative on that front. Now, that's not any less contingent. That's not any less historical. Uh, but, you know, I, I, you know, to, to hark back to, you know, again, what Coyle was saying, it is more consonant with the long tradition of the disciples of Jesus Christ called the church. Yeah. Yeah, and actually it reminds me, recently Derek Varn on his Facebook page posed a question about whether, gosh, people's politics supersede their religious beliefs. Yeah, uh, and, and, and that, that, that's one of the few Derek threads that I've actually commented on, <laughs> those things are a, a raging sea. <laughs> They are. I don't know how he survives. Um, he's Ahab out there in the middle of uh, <laughs> of, of all of this. But um, but and, and we got a really interesting discussion of secularization came into that. But it mm-hmm. is true. I think when you have um, a, a real serious political agenda of whatever stripe, um, it's easy to contort the Bible or or your your religion into fitting that political agenda, right? Um, and this is a form of that. There is a political agenda here about the state of Israel and and uh, mm-hmm. America's uh, there's like a Christian nationalist uh, theocratic approach to uh, to reading scripture um, underneath all of this. And he reads scripture through that lens. And I think that political agenda has contorted his interpretation of the Bible um, uh, in, in a really kind of serious way. So um, uh, let's sort of just kind of wrap up. I, as we were talking at some point, I did look up uh, February 5th, 1962. And interestingly enough, there was apparently a big solar eclipse and planetary alignment on that day and so so my guess is that uh herzog the the guy from the 19th century was looking at some sort of solar calendar and knew that was Mm -hmm. coming up and said this will be a great day to uh (laughs) for something cosmic to happen right and so let's let's predict the antichrist gene dixon um picks that up and uh and and also uh just kind of regurgitates the date and therefore it gets sort of incorporated into it and apparently if we're going to have had a antichrist born on that day uh jennifer jason lee is probably the um (laughs) 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 the biggest candidate she's uh the actress from fast times at Ridgemont high is uh is uh, was born on that date and so uh if you're looking for an antichrist go don't go please don't talk to jennifer jason lee i'm sure she's a lovely person and so um um but yeah so just to kind of quickly wrap up and, and draw connections here again talking about four folds there's kind of four 
aspects of this uh, approach to biblical prophecy that stand out to me as applicable to other things. Um, one is the kind of linguistic gymnastics in which you mm-hmm. kind of bend over backwards to defend yourself from your own kinds of arg- from your own principles, right? And so if I'm a fundamentalist literal reading of the Bible, I have to find a way to justify um, breaking something that's literally said in the Bible, like no man can know the day or the hour. So I have to, mm-hmm. I have to bend over backwards, right? What political movement doesn't do this? I mean, just look at the, uh, just look at the Republican party, frankly, right now uh, and what they've done mm-hmm. to, uh, and, and, and particularly those evangelical, the, what John Fia calls the court evangelicals, um, what they've done mm-hmm. to like reverse every moral stance in defense of Trump. Right. Um, reading tea leaves, trying to find these patterns and everything. Um, is, is part of every, uh, um, uh, like political movement as well. Like every little thing that's happened in the last five years of Donald Trump's life is somehow related to colluding with Russians now, right? <laughs> um, and so, um, apocalypticism, Nathan and I have talked about this before. Every election is the most important election of our lifetime, right? If, if we vote the wrong way here, then we'll all be in shackles, right? And so that kind of apocalyptic thinking um, definitely permeates our um, our, uh, our our political mind as well, um, and also the conspiratorial thinking, drawing connections and finding patterns. This is frankly when I read about RussiaGate, I can't even follow. I mean, there's so many names and dates and and who met who at what meeting. <laughs> That I'm lost in all the data, right? There's this blizzard of uh, of information meant to just convince me, convince me, convince me that is trying to beat me into submission. Um, and it's just really weird that it's Russia again. Um, I don't I don't know what it is about the Russians pre, post, during communism. It doesn't matter. It's always the Russians that are uh, that are the bad guys. And so, um, um, do you guys have any uh, final thoughts on this one? This was a fun one. Yeah, I mean. What this reminds me of uh, is the importance of becoming familiar with people who read differently than you do. Uh, you know, for me, the big experience in my life was in, you know, the the later years of my undergraduate career uh, when I started reading some Latin American liberation theologians, some black theologians, you know, some people who take the text a lot differently than I do. I didn't come away agreeing with all of them or even with most of them. But I became aware of my own contingency, and I think that you know when it comes to a tradition like Christianity that's rooted in a historical moment called Jesus Christ, uh, and that you know comes to us not in an individual revelation but through a historical tradition, it just becomes imperative that we continue to educate ourselves historically. Uh, it's not just something that you know. Uh, I like to read history, and therefore I'm going to recommend that all Christians read history. Our tradition is history, and artifacts like this you know, remind us of what happens when that sense of his- historical contingency slips from our grip. Yeah. Coyle, what do you got? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I, I agree with a lot of that. Uh, this is, uh, I think, interesting as sort of a cautionary tale. Right, uh, you know this this book is thirty years old. I think I said it was twenty years old earlier. Uh, you know, clearly in uh, in 1987, I could see where someone would be interested in and excited about this. Uh, now looking back, maybe we can see the value of not making these kinds of predictions, uh, and uh, uh, and sort of being more cautious. 
and and uh, not just going for the, uh, uh, the the quick attention getting, especially in an age of social media. I mean, I, I'm sure there are things like this that are coming out today, uh, but uh, uh, obviously there's much more potential for this to take off in an area in in a time when this is all instant mm. uh, and can travel the world. Yeah, so. but I, uh, yeah, and also be kind of immediately confined to an echo chamber right uh, and so right. yeah um and also i would add to both of those things which i agree both both of you guys there um that i feel like there's some way that this approach to christianity really cheapens life i, I mean I, if it's like always mm-hmm. looking at when things are over it's like you're looking i mean it's like yoda says to luke you know never his mind on where he is was right um <laughs> uh, I, I feel like um it's is your like life is a beautiful thing right and, and you have to like immerse yourself and, and we're supposed to redeem this creation not like long for its destruction right and, and i feel like there's something about this approach to um uh, to Christianity that is a, an, an affront to the basic tenets of Christianity. God loves his creation, right? Uh, he didn't create it. Uh, and there's a, there's a spitefulness to this and uh, that I think is just insulting. And, and, and so, yeah, I think that, uh, um, I think this is much more marginalized within Christianity than it was in the Christianity that I grew up in. Um, this, like I said, I went to a very kind of, I went to a Nazarene church. This is not some, snake handling you know <laughs> in the mountains church that i went to right um this is this was a very kind of mainstream uh, evangelical church that i went to and this was um pervasive at the time and and so um i don't think that that's true now and i think that's a good thing and so um guys i really really do appreciate uh you guys coming on um i whenever i come up with crazy ideas i know i can count on you two to uh <laughs> <laughs> to, to make something productive and out of it. But um, I've been wanting to talk about this one for a long time, and I appreciate the uh, the opportunity uh, that you've given me to do that. Um, and so uh, let me just uh, ask anybody who's still listening, uh, make sure you're subscribed on iTunes. Uh, if you go ahead and give us reviews on iTunes, that helps other people find us. Um, the Facebook page is beginning to get a few more followers. If you go click like on the Facebook page, you'll get updates and uh, show notes and that kind of thing. And you can talk to other people who listen to the show. And that sometimes is really productive. Um, and by all means, I uh, advise you to do that and, and kind of beg. So uh, and, and please do subscribe to all the shows in the Christian Humanist Network. You've got a little taste of it here today. Coyle Neal uh, from the City of Man podcast. Thank you. And uh, Nathan Gilmore from the Christian Humanist podcast, the flagship uh, thank you for coming on and uh, dropping the knowledge, guys. I really appreciate it. Take care. <laughs>